UX Podcast Episode 69. This is UX Podcast, balancing business, technology, and users every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. And I'm Panax Boom. And before we start off, we'd just like to mention that we'd really, really appreciate if you take just a few minutes to complete our listening survey and help us understand more about you, the listener, and how we can tweak the show. So go to uxpodcast.com slash survey to help us out. I actually realized I wrote listening survey in the notes there. That's why I read, read it as yeah. listening survey. It's a listener survey. I know. That's what it says on the, the page. Listen, yeah, I think listeners understand. Mm, I hope so. Yeah. But it'd be really cool if you can just take yeah. a little bit of time to fill us that in for us because... Well, we love you. Mm. Uh, we just wonder how much you love us. Oh. We have such a great show lined up today. I'm really excited. This uh, is going to be really good fun. It's fantastic. We're, um, we've got a crossover show mm. for you. This is it's kind of a new show type. We've never done... Oh, do we have to change no. tags on oh, our God, page? No, no. no. Um, hopefully so, not. what is it? It's uh, Well, <laughs> across in Boston, the, in, the, um, in the US, mm-hmm. um, there's another podcast um, called The Dirt Show. Yep. And, um, well, they're basically a UX podcast as well. Um, it's, it's hosted by um, three superheroes, as they call themselves on their, um, on their profile. Um, anyway, it's, it's Tim, Steve, and Mark. Um, and mm. we're going we're gonna to ring them up now. Mm. Uh, actually, no, we're going to teleport ourselves into their office. Yes, nice one. Yeah, <laughs> if we see if we can pull this off, there's gonna be five voices in this podcast. So, um, sit down, get ready, and we prepared a few questions for each other. Yeah, here we go. Hey, hey guys! Hey guys! Hello there. Let's introduce ourselves. How, how about that? How about we introduce ourselves, gentlemen? Hello, I'm James Rawlson, and I'm Panax Paul. I'm Steve Hickey. This is Mark Grambo. And Tim Wright. Yeah. And um, we've gonna, got five voices on a podcast. Mm. Which, this um, is going to be out of control. It's, it's already it's out of control. Spiral out of control, this is. Yeah. So we're going <laughs> to ask each other some questions as people from different countries and see, see how we, we deal with the same problems across borders. Yes. Yeah. We deal with a lot of violence, mostly. <laughs> a violence in web design? Yeah. Violence <laughs> in web design. Yeah. It's a brutal field. Yeah. Sounds yeah. like a, a smashing our, a title. So uh, our, f- our, f- our first question for you guys has to do with UX for the blind. Uh, in the US, we have accessibility guidelines like Section 508, which you know, I think is, is not great, but we do have it, so it exists. And in, in Europe, are there any similar guidelines that protect users with disabilities? Well, Europe is a, Europe is a complex thing because it's, it's a basically a... It's, it's a loads of different separate countries um, with all their separate governments and separate laws and so on. And then there's this European thing, um, which kind of sits on top of them, but doesn't. Um, and you have to implement certain things and then other things you do yourself. And it's a bit of a mishmash of stuff. Um, but when it boils down to it, there's, there's a lot of different laws in a lot of different countries. And here in Sweden, we don't actually have any, any laws which govern accessibility. So you guys are just like be nice people. Yeah, and we are really nice, actually. We are. We're really that. pleasant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
I'm having a great time right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I said there's no laws. I mean, we do have we do have very distinct laws about um, um, well. There's these certain minority languages mm. and minority groups, and you've got to make certain um, information available to them, especially mm. when you're um, uh, public sector websites. Um, mm. But as far as an equivalent of Section 508, no. Well, there are, you know, there are general accessibility laws, of course, when it comes to uh, the physical world, uh, have, having to have ways for uh, wheelchairs to get into restaurants and stuff like that. And right. those laws, of course, if, if you interpret them in one way, you could say that they apply to the digital world as well, since mm-hmm. everything, most of the stuff is being done digital now, including uh, community services and uh, governmental services as well. So in that sense, there is a law, but nobody's really abiding by it in the digital world in that mm-hmm. sense. At the yeah, same time, since we are such nice people, we are extremely aware of <laughs> web content accessibility guidelines and the web accessibility initiative and we've been well aware of them for many years now and I've been an advocate of accessibility for well since since 98 basically mm. and been giving talks about it but listening to a lot of the talks going out today it's they're saying the same things and they're talking about WCAG and uh, we have to think about it but there's not generally not not among clients and stakeholders there's not a lot of knowledge about it they know there's something out there yeah we should probably think about that but nobody wants to really invest time and money in it but you've also got very two distinct sides of the coin here we've got the um the public sector websites um and mm. on the public sector side i mean they're all really versed and really used to the fact that you know when they're procuring new websites it's there it's there as a section that you've got to live up to you've got to deliver accessible solutions but then we have the the private sector websites the company websites and they don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's that, not that it's not a business goal. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not a business goal really. They don't mm. see it as a. They're not going to pay extra for something. They're not going to prioritize time. You maybe need to, um, to to think about stuff or deliver something. And okay, if you if you happen to have a a, a developer on your team who is you know, tuned in and keyed up on on accessibility, they're just going to do that. They're just going to get on with it. Right. So you don't even need to deal with it as an issue. It doesn't cost you extra. Mm. But if you if you don't have one of those guys on board or girls on board and your client really has no idea about this, then you're going to struggle to, to communicate and get across any of these ideas and get time mm. for it or get space in a sprint for it. Um, I still meet people who are surprised that there are blind people using the internet, actually, oh. among, among clients, which is crazy. Mm. But <laughs> there wow. it is. Uh, oh. I would love. I mean, my dream is to actually bring one of these people into one of my clients' offices and mm. having that client tell them why they won't, won't want to don't want to design a website for them. But yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. I remember, it's, super, I, it's, it's super powerful. Just yeah, it probably yeah. is. This, yeah. this is this is the person you're giving a middle finger mm. to right here. Yeah. They can't see it, but yeah. you're giving it to them. I tend to to distribute around uh, the blind film critic. You know him on YouTube. The best. Uh, no, I haven't seen this. Blind film critic. Look, look him up. Uh, he, he does lots of how he uses the iPhone and stuff like that mm-hmm. and how he gets around in the digital world. How he uses Instagram. He actually uses Instagram. Oh, He's no, a we've mentioned, yeah, yeah, now I remember. You've mentioned yeah. Oh, yeah. before. Yeah. Yeah. And, and having people actually watch those short clips with him actually makes them realize, oh, my God, mm-hmm. there's lots of people we're not thinking about are actually using this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I remember back in the early 2000s, the way I sold it, accessibility was sort of cloaking it uh, into search engine optimization, because there, <laughs> some of the benefits, right. of course, are the same. Uh, exactly. So, but and mm. they understand the benefits, but that means money. Mm. Uh, more people finding my website, uh, yeah. which is silly because th- that's exactly what accessibility is. <laughs> yeah, but it, 
But it's, it's, I, I mean, things things are going. I mean, things are going forward so quickly mm. as well. We had a we had a show um, oh, over a year ago, a couple of years ago, maybe now, um, with Derek Featherstone when we talked about um, infographics and accessibility of infographics because you know they've been huge now for a while and they're they're one of the least accessible things that we've ever mm-hmm. managed to spit out of our our web caverns of, of inspiration. <laughs> they're they're awful. Um, and Can you imagine writing an alt tag for one of those? Well, exactly. You know, exactly. Imagine doing one fully accessible. It's possible, but you've got to do it right from the beginning. You've got to really yeah. design it into the whole solution, right. or you're going to end up, you know, ah, sod it. We do it with a picture. Yeah. 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 That's what we should work on next: actual accessible infographics. It'll well, we be used, all the rage. We used to yeah. use something called D links for for that. When mm-hmm. you have a really long description of an image, there's to be a oh yeah the, yeah. the letter D, and you would just color it white so you couldn't or whatever the background was mm-hmm. so when you're you're going through the you know screener is going through it it sees this d-link mm-hmm. and it links off to a page that has a, d- a detailed description oh, okay. we don't we don't wow. we don't really see them anymore but that's how they used to be done back in the day yeah learn something new every day <laughs> <laughs> yeah back in the 1940s that's mm. how we handled you know accessible links so the short answer is no there are no laws. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, it's the wild it. west out here. Awesome. <laughs> so, so do you guys have a question for us? Yeah, let's move on to a question for you guys. Um, did you want to read this part? I can't read that part. You can't read that far. You're oh, too go, old. Go, go ahead. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> You're younger than me. Um, right, device and browser um, apocalypse. Um, in in work with public web sector uh, websites, we still have to take into account um, old browsers, as, as old as Internet Explorer 7. Um, Internet Explorer 6 is thankfully kind of vanished now from our, our, our um, agendas, um, but that's only quite recently, really. Um, how much of a dilemma um, is this in your experience? Um, do you feel you can um, put higher demands on users' browsers? Um, and I think, I think a related thing to this is, is perhaps just the number of um, devices that people are using connected to the Internet. That's just exploding. Mm. Um, so what's um, what's your strategy for making sure web solutions work across the board? Well, I think we, we kind of all subscribe to the websites don't have to look the same in all browsers adage. And uh, when we're building something specifically, we're using progressive enhancement and graceful degradation to make sure that, you know, we're using these these really nice things in Chrome and Safari and, and you know, early uh, later versions of Firefox that will, when we get down to IE 8 and 7, they still the content is still available. So we know we're not generating content with JavaScript and everything. But as far as testing goes, we're pretty much stopping in IE 8 now, mm. uh, unless someone specifically requests it. But the way, just the way things are constructed, um, we know that you know, I'm le- leaving gaps for no JavaScript. Um, so all content is always available. There's a, on the freshtoldsoil.com. We just redid our our homepage on the process section, and there's some panels that slide over and around like one of those little moving cube games. Mm. And without the only way I'm doing that is just adding and removing a class, and then using a, a transition or an animation to move the block over. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have that capability, the block just kind of snaps over, mm. and I'm fine with that. Because our, our specific browser statistics are not very high for for IE8, or IE7 or 6 is like nothing now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, from a from a client to client aspect, it it's definitely their personal 
statistics yeah. that we're looking at. So if a client has heavy IE6, we'll, we'll know that from the beginning and we'll build it a certain way so it at the very least degrades gracefully all the way down. Yeah, Mark and I actually recently worked on a project that uh, sort of defied the normal standards uh, of how we think about this stuff. It's a mapping project for a relatively large property. And so we had to use some newer, more advanced technologies that would not degrade gracefully whatsoever. And um, I think at first we basically just were telling people, oh, if, if you have IE7 or less, no, upgrade, which is obviously a terrible <laughs> solution. That is a terrible yes. solution. Uh, I, I think, honestly, what we ended up doing was uh, providing links to PDFs of the different mapping sections. Like if you don't, if your browser is not capable of using the things necessary to support this, we're sorry. There is no degraded solution better than, you know, here's a PDF, go wild. Mm. It was just one of those things where it, it's not really like a site full of text or images or anything like mm. that. It is an actual interactive map. There really was no sensible solution for the downgrade other than a static PDF. Mm. Well, they also, mm. in that case, some clients, you, you sort of have two very different personalities of clients. Some are very, very worried about um, about supporting older browsers and, and uh, legacy support because they're terrified of losing anyone. Mm. And then there's the other side of the clientele who say, you know, screw that percent. We want to be pushing forward, forward, forward. Um, and what was interesting about this project we were working on was that despite it being a project uh, for, as you said, a really large um, institution and a public space that a lot of people are going to need to be able to access, a really, really broad audience, um, in that kind of institution, you'd normally expect the former. You'd normally expect the, you know, careful, we don't want to, you know, lose anyone. But in fact, because they're on maybe longer or fixed, you know, budget contracts, they want to make sure they were getting the most future-proof thing as possible. They really want to be looking forward. Um, and I so mean, in that case, they were sort of unusually willing to sort of cut the cord going further back. Yeah, I mean, we came into this and I honestly expected to hear something like, uh, this needs to support SVG animation in Netscape Navigator or something ridiculous like yeah. that. And we okay. were really surprised how uh, how forward they wanted to push with this. Yeah. But, you know, there's there's interactions that... <clears throat> that can fall back to nothing like the, the snapping of the panels and there's interactions that need to actually exist for certain reasons. And the ones that actually need to happen, will do some feature detection for a, for transition support or, and then write it in JavaScript to make sure mm -hmm. it works. Uh, that's, that doesn't happen as much as now as it used to because all the browsers are, are kind of up to date. I think you can even get transition support in IE nine now. So we're not, you know, we're, we're moving in the right direction, I think. I don't think I've actually heard a client say IE6 as anything but a joke for over a year. Mm. Yeah. That's, been that's been refreshing. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I noticed that if you're dealing with or intranet or enterprise solutions, so rather than kind of consumer-facing stuff, you've got software you're selling, or sorry, websites or web-based things that you're selling for use internally in companies, mm -hmm. then it gets all messed up. Yeah. You Absolutely. Get, you get, yeah. Yeah, really weird requirements about browsers and you know what they should work with. Yeah, we had a there was a a big rash of uh, not clients here, but um, just internal IT departments not upgrading yeah. systems, and that's that's really the only time we would encounter IE six. Mm. Yeah, it was actually at a, a place where Steve and I met where we used to work. Um, the company. Uh, was running XP, as many companies did, far longer than you would expect. You know, Vista had been out for a while, um, and for all the, the issues of Vista, especially early on, by the end of Vista's life cycle before 7, I mean, 
as bad a rap as Vista gets, a lot of it had to do with early stuff and compatibility with hardware and drivers and such. And yet it's such a bad rap. They were, you know, delaying, 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 um, upgrading. And so they finally, finally years later got into windows seven, but you're looking at because of just the huge amount of an upgrade they would have had to do for a, a big, you know, multinational corporation. They're like, you know, what? we'd rather save the money, save, you know, mm. the huge it expenses and keep us on, on these older machines running IE six. And so it was, and it was because they had built in all these, you know, internal tools that ran specifically in IE6 oh, that yeah. interfaced yeah. with their internal the system. The day we upgraded, yep. every tool broke. It was glorious. <laughs> yeah. thing, yep. like, I, I don't even know how to build something that only works in IE6. Talent. Someone said, listen, sit down and make this work in just IE6. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I mean, look, I'm I'm a little too young for that to have ever for IE six to have been that big a problem in my life. I got into this at just the right time to avoid it. But the history I read said that when IE six came out, it was it was the best. It was mm-hmm. the shit. It had yeah. all sorts of cool stuff you couldn't do in anything. And those features, because they weren't standard, is how we wound up in this problem. Exactly. People built for them. And they, nobody you, was ever going to implement that. I, I remember the joy in one of my first projects I did here in Sweden where um, the organization I was working with, they rolled out Internet Explorer 5 during <laughs> my project. So we suddenly got the chance to use some of the adv- features of IE5. So we didn't have nice. to use Netscape and IE4 features. Mm. It, was, it was a wonderful moment. We, we went out and got drunk. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Rightly so. So yeah, the, uh, the, the short answer is IE8. <laughs> we're <pretty laughs> with, with, with the three-syllable answer. Off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The three-syllable answer for anyone who's tuned out for the last 10 minutes. All uh, right. So we've got another question for you. This one pertains to the cookie law, the infamous cookie law that nobody in the U.S. has had to deal with, but mm. which I see pop up on every European site that I visit. Uh, so <laughs> we know there are some legal differences between the U.S. and Europe and how they deal with privacy. Mm. I think over here, generally, our politicians are just okay with selling everything mm. they know about us, unfortunately. Mm. So how do you deal with the disparity in laws between the different countries your sites have to serve, uh, be it privacy, copyright, or enforcement problems? Mm. Yeah. This is this part of the answer. To this is a similarish answer to the laws I mentioned about in the, for the right. first question. I mean, it's um, um, the the cookie law came as a European directive. So this is mm-hmm. one of the things it came up at high level, and then the, you, each member country is given a certain amount of time to implement a, a, a country law. Um, okay, and that took that took years. Um, mm-hmm. But the other year, we've got to the point where pretty much well, two thirds, I think, of all the countries um, had um, done it. Um, and the way that they've been interpreted this um, and the way that they'd, um, they, they'd implemented it um, varied an awful lot. Some countries, like Sweden, um, they implemented a law but made it very, um, well, pretty loose, really. And it was, um, mm-hmm. it was interpreted as not a strict implementation of opt-in. So you, you didn't have to basically, you didn't demand that people say yes before doing absolutely anything. Um, and mind you, the computer magazines were making fun of it. I thought it was really, really stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was lots of articles coming out when it was launched. That, yeah. yeah, but, but that's not... I mean, some countries, though, um, like for us, we, um, we've got Latvia and um, Lithuania that are effectively border countries to Sweden. There's water in between, but they're, they're close by. Mm. Um, they no do idea. have strict opt-in. Um, 
and and that's a different thing where you're going to definitely have to ask permission before you start saving things. But it's not just cookies. It's it's HTML5 local storage. It's yeah. It's, it's flash. Uh, anything to do with kind of mm. you know flash data you stored. I mean, it's, it's basically almost anything you've transferred. The, the Swedish law talks about mm. terminal devices and transmission of data between terminal devices. So you you know if you get down to the letter of the law, it's it's basically almost anything you're sending over the internet. Mm. You need to get permission before you do it. Yeah, Absolutely. I hadn't realized that when I started doing research on it. Like, if I'm just using local storage to like hold the contents of a form so it doesn't get blown away on a page yeah. refresh by accident, do I have to alert people to the fact that yep. I'm doing that? Yeah, mm. Effect, yeah. Uh, yeah. And effect, and what's another interesting thing about this and makes it a real bollock is that you, um, it's it's the country of the visitor that counts. Yeah. yeah, doesn't matter. So you, where. you can't control where people visit your site from. Well, you could which, do some kind of IP. <laughs> I, mean, I guess you, you know, could turn off. Stuff like, <laughs> hey, South Korea, go away. Exactly, like, yeah. same kind of thing. Same as your, yeah. your solution there with a yeah. the PDF. Yeah. There's no dis- no, yeah. no graceful fallback. So you basically go, God, you're from Lithuania. No, I'm sorry, mate. You're not. You're not coming yeah. in. I mean, um, like, what do you write? Like, it's too hard for us to comply with your country's laws. Welcome. So sorry. Just a big not welcome. Yeah. So the 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 guide, the device here would be that. Um, you know, if you're if you're deliberately targeting people in a certain country, then you probably should apply. You should probably do things that apply to yeah. that country's laws. So even right. if you guys in America are building websites, if you're building a product that is aiming internationally, so you're aiming for any country in the world, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, you probably should take into account some of these laws. Now. Um, it's going to be impossible to ask for. Op- I mean, op- asking for an opt-in every time is going to be mm. ridiculous. Um, and there is no site. standard solution for how you ask for no. that opt-in. So that's no. it's funny because yeah. it puts design constraints on how you actually implement it. Yeah. And we've actually done some research before, and we've almost mm. did a show about it. All the different solutions that you see of how they actually. Some of them have a big pop-up. Some of them have a small banner in the bottom or at the top, and it's mm. they're different sizes. And so, I mean, the user has no. No yeah. way of actually understanding that it's about the same thing. It, they just, yeah. you just seem really silly asking for permission to store data. It does. Actually, I guess it's sort of comparable to uh, how uh, alcohol websites have to run in the U.S. Right. I mean, it's the same kind of thing here. Actually, have to run. Oh, you you'll have the two? yeah. Okay. The Sweden's got the same kind of rule. I think where you've got to have basically a, a one of those kind of welcome splashes that says, yeah. "Are you 18?" Mm-hmm. It's yeah, really irritating. I'm 18. Click on the button. Like, and yeah. every site implements them so poorly too. Like, I've seen ones they yeah. ask you actually to put in your exact birth date, and the forms aren't implemented <laughs> right, so it's impossible to navigate through them with the keyboard. And it's really just a yes or no question. Yeah, it's, it gets it gets ridiculous. Well, the thing, yeah. the other interesting thing with this um, with the whole cookie law is that there's been basically just a couple of prosecutions across the whole of Europe. Mm. I think Spain... Oh, wow. Spain, I think, um, last year was the first country that did anything. And it was a very small fine. I mean, it wasn't Mm -hmm. more than... uh, It was a few tens of thousands of dollars. Um, But... um, um, You know, so so all the other countries, Sweden included, there's... um, They've not really prioritized doing anything about it. The, mm. the, The agency that's in in charge of prosecuting here, if anyone complains, they don't have any resources to deal with this. They've said that. Yeah, um, I'd actually read during my research that uh, it, some people considered the enforcement to be so toothless that the actual enforcement agency's website decided to stop notifying people of cookies. I think this might have been the, the UK, UK specifically. Yeah, it was the UK yeah. one. They started doing that. Yeah, they'd give <laughs> yeah. up basically. But the, the, like, oh, it's too hard. We're not going to do it. <laughs> the intention of the law, though, wasn't really to catch out every single website that had cookies. The intention of the law was more to do with stopping the people abusing it you know the, the people doing really nasty remarketing and kind of really trying to work out who you are who you are and kind of selling data and, and getting more into your kind of 
you know private private integrity of your, yeah. your who you are that it was that kind of side of mm. marketing that they wanted to get on top of not yeah, to I, stop you know you just storing something in html5 local data when you're you know doing a website yeah i think unfortunately a lot of this legislation and and cultural movements often come out of you know trying to st- you know, stop the abusers from using something that can be used perfectly well for the rest of society or something. Mm. And most often, than, more often than not, cons- uh, you know, trying to, you know, the, the measures we use to constrict bad behavior don't really punish the abusers because they'll find another way. It, it, it punishes everyone else. Uh, exactly. Digital rights management is probably the best example. DRM mm. is not going to mm. stop someone from pirating a movie mm. or, uh, or music if they want to. What it is going to do is hamper the usage for the average you know, user who says, what, I can't put this on my iPod, it's already on this other one, and now I can't do anything yeah. with this, or I can only watch this on this one device. You've yeah. got to bring up Apple every time. <laughs> <laughs> Or Microsoft, mm. anyone, anyone, DRM. I'm just talking about the Zoom. DRM, yeah, Leave man, you. the Zoom. Oh. Plays for sure. We'll talk about plays for sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, so it, mm. that's it, it, what's so frustrating about, you know, trying to legislate technology from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, so I think to sum up, to give a kind of quick answer about what I think you guys maybe should do if you're dealing with international websites there, is um, audit what you're saving or what you're, you're you're sending out there and make sure you just have a page that that lists all this it's a bit of it's just a bit of housekeeping it's like okay there are these eight cookies and you know these ones we use for analytics these ones are used for remarketing these ones are used for that this is this is something we use for um, you know the shopping basket and so on and uh, i think a lot of countries are just going to go what an excellent job <laughs> and yeah. if you happen to have yeah. a problem with one of the countries that's a bit more strict then i i, I suspect you'll be able to afford some lawyers somewhere that can help you mm. out <laughs> I know a guy who knows a guy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, we've got another question for you. Now, Pa, you're going to have to read one of these ones. I'm not going to read all the time. The last one you wrote, so I, I end up reading your question. So, yeah. Here's, <laughs> read that. I can hold it if you want. Okay. So, this one's about uh, the budget for research and usability testing. So, one problem that we usually, of course, I mean, everyone struggles with this is getting enough time uh, to do research ahead of actually starting wireframing and stuff and actually doing the usability testing before launching. So when we often hear that the U.S. is ahead of us in this and, and more mature, and is that really true? Is, do, do you get enough time to set aside for usability testing and research uh, with your project, yeah. projects? Uh, yeah, before we answer that, do you guys have, st- am I seeing a sticker? Do you guys have UX podcast stickers? Yes, we do. Oh my God! We don't have any stickers. I've what got, are we doing? Yeah, we're gonna have to fix that. <laughs> got stickers. We've got. Uh, yeah, no, that's got what stickers, I of course. I've okay. got a. I've got a roll up as well. Do, I mean, do you call them roll ups again? You know the, yeah. the the sign, the kind of marketing sign thing you pull up mm. with your logo on, which we. Oh, if we do, any um, that shit. If we do recordings when we're like um, on location, we're on. We do event shows. And yeah. We have our little ah, thing. Uh, UX podcast uh, sign that we pull up and um, kind of nice. hijack these <laughs> events. Total total amateur show over here. Yeah. <laughs> Amateur hour. We need stickers. Anyways, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start trying to answer the question. I think uh, what we've seen is that I think startups and people who are doing a lot of this work themselves have shown a huge willingness to get into usability research and testing on their own. Uh, what we found with some of our clients is that it, it's looked at almost as a line item that wants to get negotiated over sometimes. Somebody will look mm-hmm. at it and go, okay, so you want to do you want to do research and you want to do wireframes, you want to do design, you want to do front-end code. Okay, can we cross research off that list and yeah. you can cut the price by about 30%? And yep. no, mm-hmm. no, we, we can't do that. It's part of the process. The rest of it can't go well if we don't do that. Mm-hmm. 
And, mm. Yeah, it, it is a fight to sometimes to not portray it as an a la carte service mm-hmm. where mm. you can just pull things out and put stuff in like accessibility, like usability yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's part of the process and we've had pushback from clients recently about, you know, Oh, do we really need to test that? That one, not going to say the name of the mm. client, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah they, <laughs> you know, you know, who yeah, I'm about. that client. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we, we spec'd out a, a prototype and some usability testing and, and then just kind of continued on and like, well, do we really need to usability test the prototype? Well, like, yes. Yeah, we do. I mean, I think the way we should be pitching that is you, you came to us for a reason. There's a reason you wanted to work with us, and that's because the process we use, uh, we can't really guarantee the results that you've seen other people get without being allowed to go through that process. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I, I, I think <sighs> it's a sales pitch. It's a sales pitch, exactly. Mm. And, and you just it's about impressing the importance of it. Um, you also sort of... Um, asked uh, sort of two questions, both about the usability uh, testing once you have something to test, mm. but also doing, I think, preliminary research. Yeah. Um, one way we've sort of approached it is is in the way that we frame our, you know, the entire engagement itself is instead of just, okay, we handshake, we handshake, you guys, you know, clients send us over documents, what you want to do, let's have a quick little meeting and then we'll get started. Um, we really start engineering in these larger opening sessions with our clients, these deep dives, um, where we'll have, depending on the client, anywhere from one to two or three days, um, where it's a really intensive, um, sort of structured meeting uh, with with uh, our team and, and the client team, and everyone's on their feet, and we're participating. We're really deeply thinking about their product, and we're and we're trying to pull out of them the things that they wouldn't perhaps normally know to art- or know how to articulate. Mm. Um, and that's been a very uh, big help for us at first because even if we're not getting full-on research from the get-go and we're not going out there and interviewing their users, from the start, we're, we're getting a better perspective into their business and mm. into their users and into um, not only the, uh, the end users, but also the internal uh, users, the other people at the company. Maybe we have to get mm. buy-off from an executive. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. you know. And so baking that into part of our process has been enormously helpful. It, it took a little, I think, bumpy road getting started and formulating the process around it, making the structure. Um, but now that we have, it's, it's proven enormously beneficial for, the, um, for our uh, client work. I think it also sells that we know what we're doing. I mean, one, once people go through that session, they tend to really, uh, the reaction we've seen is people are fairly impressed and they get out of it. They get actual interaction with the people working on their project for over the course of a couple of days. So they're not just a name at the other end of a computer screen. And then when those people make recommendations, they're more willing to listen to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, what, my question, what this question really boils down to is, is the level of maturity of UX. Um, for yeah. you guys over there, yeah. and and how you play off the level of maturity of UX in your agency contra the level of maturity of UX in the client organizations. Mm. Yeah, Some, definitely. Something I've noticed with thing with concepts that are semi immature, like usability testing, um, and like significantly further back, like maybe five six years ago, when accessibility was was first coming up, we have our whole process, our design process, we're building and going through the whole project. And then it was just something that was tacked onto the end. And then it eventually just worked its way into the, the process as, as normal. Like, you know, we're building also while we're doing this, we'll make it accessible. Right. And then, mm-hmm. you know, later on, the same thing happened with mobile. Mobile was just tacked onto the end and then it got folded in and we it kind of morphed into responsive and, 
you know, it's more net into the natural process. And then usability testing came along and it got tacked onto the end. And now we're finally starting to see it fold naturally into the process a little bit more. Uh, I would also add that um, in terms of trying to sell uh, sell clients on the value of it, um, I think it's like anything else where um, uh, financial value really uh, is very has to be very closely tied to perceived value. And if the clients don't have a concept of what the value of testing is, or even what the value of your work is in the first place mm-hmm. of doing, you know, UI and really user experience design, then they're not going to appreciate. They're they're going to balk at a number. They're going to balk at a price on something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for these deep dive sessions we've been doing, um, the the more we can get the client involved in the process overall, yeah. and the less we're just sort of throwing stuff over the fence, posting something on on Basecamp or something, say, what do you think? You know, the more we get them involved and the more we guide, um, the more they sort of get how the sausage is made um, and they, they have an understanding of the value. You know, you're going to go to the store and and, buy, and you look at a price tag for a chair and you're like, oh my God, why does this cost $800? Why does it cost $2,000 versus mm-hmm. this cheap one I can get over here? But then if, you know, if, if that company has a video online and you can see the process and you're and you're meeting the craftsman who designed this thing and you see the materials and you can see the difference they get they get the value and you as a consumer get the yeah. value so it's it's up to us to make sure that we keep clients involved in the whole process and they understand mm. the value mm. of usability yeah. Yeah. And, and testing I mean, a quick reflection there is i think i think working in sprints or working more kind of agile has really made a big difference to yeah. to just how you can naturally get Things like accessibility mm-hmm. or user testing or research mm-hmm. into the process because you know you're iterating quicker, so you 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 get chance to kind of do a little bit. You kind of do a bit more guerrilla mm-hmm. tactics here and there right. to kind of mm-hmm. just get a little bit in and show the benefit and show how it proves the the the. the work. And I, I've noticed how much difference video makes. If I can show a user having trouble with the website for two minutes, then it suddenly becomes real. Me me saying it in yeah. PowerPoint does not make it real, but a video, yeah. all of a sudden they they react and mm-hmm. they need attention to it. Yeah. Yeah, they feel uncomfortable. You feel that user's discomfort and pain, and and they know that na- yeah. that's your brand value. It's like this this person now really hates your company because they couldn't use it. Yeah, we've also we used a service. Was it UI dot com? Yeah, UI like Y O U E Y E dot com mm. to do usability testing for us sometimes, and we've also been <clears throat> testing out a remote usability testing software called Zoom. Yeah. It's actually not specifically for usability testing. It's meeting software, but it has the right feature set that we've been able to sort of hijack it for usability testing. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah that was, we just did something for a European rail company, and we did remote user testing with, with people in Europe through mm-hmm. that app. It was yeah. really, really helpful. It, it worked really well, and it was actually pretty cheap and easy to do, too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what do you, reckon? Yeah, uh, do you reckon? Do you reckon we've got time to quickly take one more question? What do you think? You want to, yeah, let's, let's, let's do another I'm happy to. Okay. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll can, because I think the, your third question, go for that. Sure. I think we can, we can have it as a joint question. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. This, and that's very good. I want to get a discussion around this. This, get, for once, we're not asking get, about the, the get, difference get between the <laughs> US and EU. Come on. Um, so when I think of, of experience design, um, I think of, we, we try and employ a balance of what I'd say scientific thinking and emotional thinking. 
So scientific being what we were just talking about. We use a ton of analytics and different kinds of measurements and testing and behavioral models, et cetera, because we want to be able to quantify, especially for the client's benefit, um, we want to be able to quantify and better understand the results of our work. We want to be able to show that UX equals this percentage increase in your in your growth or in your user satisfaction or your income. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's our job to put ourselves in the user's shoes. We have to break down our personal biases and you know, really be very empathetic. We have to imagine the, um, the user's strengths, their weaknesses, any of their disabilities. Um, much as we talked about, you know, you have to imagine the, a blind user trying to get through this site. Mm-hmm. Um, and that work can be, not all cases, but can be a lot fuzzier. It's a lot more emotional. It's a lot more psychology. Uh, it's about intuition. Um, and I'm curious to ask you guys, uh, as fellow UX designers, where do you think that balance lies? Is is uh, is there really a, is our job day to day sort of a fifty fifty balance of this science and intuition? And how do you communicate the value of those emotional skills? It's easy to communicate scientific value. It's a little harder to uh, translate. You know, well, I'm a really nice guy who gets mm. other people. Like, how do you how do you put a price on that? If I I'll, I'll jump in first. Go ahead. Right. I think I think what you said there at the end was mm. about the communicating is is the key thing there. I mean, I, I'm I'm more of a I'm more of a kind of science or, or measurement man. I mean, I like I like the data. I like getting into to the the, the problem metrics of stuff. Um, but but when it boils down to UX work, we're we're always communicating to someone. Um, you know, the next person in line, whether it's the client or whether it's the user, we're having to get a point across to someone. So so how much emotion we use, how much science to use, how much you know measurement we use. That you know, it kind of doesn't really matter as long as we succeed in communicating. To the next in you know to the target audience or the next in line, and that target target audience isn't always the end user. It's quite often mm-hmm. you know the client or the client's steering group or internal people or or the people in your team. You know the the, de- the devs or the you know the AD or someone else that's working with you. Mm. So so I think that's that's the answer. I, I, I'm not sure there's a real kind of exact balance. I think it's more that we've got to keep got to remember who we're talking to and and what we're trying to what we're trying to get across, what point we're trying to get across. I think this is where you and I differ the most, James, actually, where you're balanced more towards data and I think I'm balanced more to emotion. Yeah, uh, probably. Probably because I'm so disorganized. Uh, but because I'm so organized. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, I think it's hard to say because I think even looking at data, you're a bit emotional about interpreting the data mm. as well. So yeah. the, all the data you're looking at is statistics from Google and whatever interviews you're doing. And there is emotion... Your, it's interpretation of what the data is saying to you and how you're going to use it. So in that sense, uh, of course, it's a balance all the time. Uh, what strikes me, actually, when you're posing the question is that uh, I think in the U.S., you, emotion plays, uh, in the culture, more a more important role. Because look, going to events, events are much better in the States than in Europe, <laughs> generally, because uh, there's so much focus on the complete experience. Uh, and I think uh, I, we're basically not used to that as much, at, at least not in Sweden, looking at the events here. And putting emotion into websites is uh, something that I struggle. It's almost like when we talked about accessibility. It's something that I have to struggle with, getting people to understand that it plays an important role in the end product. Uh, and I have a, a very concrete example, actually, with the product I'm working in now with health services. And I've started putting uh, a bit of fun into the error messages, and I've been getting feedback from the testers now that they've never seen error messages like this before, and they're, and they're really enjoying testing. And just the testers enjoying testing is telling me a lot about what I think the, the users in the end will actually think about the website. 
mm-hmm. and getting them to realize that of course gives me more mandate and more and more thing people understand that i'm know what i'm talking about and i get more mandate for actually employing more into the actual interface as well and not just the error messages so mm-hmm. i'm a big fan of emotion and putting emotion into the interface but maybe not going overboard uh, and we've talked a bit about that in, in I was, I was play, just, playful interfaces and exactly. I was things just moving you know, around. And, you're, getting, mm. you're getting people to laugh at error messages or find error message yeah. amusing, but they're not going to laugh the fifth time that message comes N- up. Not necessarily amusing, <laughs> yeah, not necessarily amusing, but more apologetic because yeah. this was our right. fault and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, a little more human. Well, it's an interesting point because yeah. by the time somebody does see that error message, they're already usually frustrated. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. like, mm. so, and it's, mm. it's like your frontline documentation mm. really mm-hmm. is the first thing they see and then they'll see it five six times mm-hmm. and then they'll go to the the actual documentation they'll be just be pissed off the whole time yeah <laughs> but it, it, you're, you're designing, right that, d- designing for aggression really it presents yeah error messages especially are really it's it's that point that you have to catch someone and stop them from escalating perhaps and from mm, getting yeah. angry or to maybe calm someone down and mm. so that's a really great place for humanity mm. um for a little more humor um, or self-deprec- self-deprecation, as you said, say it's a little bit our mm. fault, you know, apologize to the user there. Right. Um, from from a, an actual process point of view, I think when I was putting this question out, my, my personal feeling on it is that um, intuition and emotion is something that is such an integral part of what we do, but it's sort of, I feel like maybe it's the unspoken qualification for being in the industry in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of an unspoken hiring uh, qualifier. You want to make sure that the person you're hiring doesn't just look out at the the users as 1.2 million anonymous, you know, things out there that they're you know remembering that they're human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, just as you want a nice person around your office who's going to be you know a pleasant to work with and 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 uh, conscientious uh, that those same characteristics are going to play out to be a better UX designer. And I feel like the intuition is often the first part of design. I think I often go really, really intuition first and I really try to put myself in people's shoes. And then once I've gone off my sort of gut instinct, the testing and everything is my way of checking my gut and making mm-hmm. sure that yeah. I'm, I am in fact in tune with the users that, you know, that what I thought was going to be easy to use for this, you know, market really was, or maybe it wasn't. So I find it as a way to keep myself in check and make sure that I'm, I'm really listening to the people out there. Yeah. Li- yeah. Living empathetically is exhausting. Yeah. I exhaust <laughs> him all the time by making him think about others. Yeah, I have to sit next to Mark all day. Wait, wait, it's Tim, exhausting. you call that empathy? All right. Yelling and swearing at Mark during the day. Yeah. That's right. Version of empathy. He hates how awesome I am. So you, you guys are right. You're at, the, you're at the beginning of your day. I mean, we've done the full day of kind of shouting at people <laughs> yeah. and trying to be nice and so on. <laughs> we're about we're about halfway through, and I think we're all going to get grumpy though if we don't have lunch. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually dinner time for us here now. Yeah, so, perfect. We're all hungry. That's cool. Mm. Well, we had a great time on your show. I hope you had a good time on ours. Oh, it was it's so much fun. It's been great fun. We need to do this again. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think we could. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. I don't, know, I don't know how to end a joint show. Yeah. We'll just, no, I, we'll just, I have we'll just, no idea. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just cut it. There. We, we just, just, we just it. kind of just press the stop button and run. <laughs> yeah, we'll yeah. just we'll just cut. Mm-hmm. All right. Later. Okay, I'm still in one piece. Are you? I, I think I'm all here. Um, I feel a little bit jiggled, but no. that was excellent fun. That worked well. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm impressed and pleased by how, well, five... Five UXs all managed to hold a conversation. Mm. You probably have no idea who was talking at different points of time, but 
Uh, yeah, well, I had the original idea. Oh, you mean the listeners? Uh, li- I mean, listeners. Uh, five voices, yeah. Okay. No, I think it was good. Mm-hmm. You get, I mean, you see that a lot of the things, well, you understand that, you know, we do deal with a lot of the same issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some, some technicalities on the fringe which are different, um, but I think we are in the same boat, by and large. I think so. But mm-hmm. I, I, I really don't get the sense that the US is more mature than us. No, you. It's, it's the same struggle. They have the same strategies. Yeah. It's uh, all, they've got the same similar. scale as, mm. as we have, and mm. sometimes you're fair up the scale mm. with different clients mm. compared to others. Um, it's um, it's not, you can't say the US is at this level mm. of US maturity, and Sweden is at this level. Of course not. Of and, and keeping in mind, you need to understand, of course, that they're a very professional agency, and they're get, taking into account all the right things with mobile and accessibility, mm. and and. Uh, Sometimes we just come across companies that don't think about those things, and we come across those companies in all countries. So yeah, it's not a matter, of course, than about it's more it's more about interest and passion for for UX than anything else, mm. and 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 sticking to I suppose sticking to your guns, sticking yeah. to your no to your beliefs, I guess, because mm-hmm. we've all got a lot of beliefs, especially with, well, working with UX. Um, and like Mark said, that that um, you know we we. It's a lot of emotion, a lot of passion, a lot of a lot of things we believe in, and a lot of things that we we fight for. True, and that's good. And we're finding our own ways of fighting, fighting uh, all methods and tactics, or communicating. Nice. Yeah, almost same thing. Yeah. <laughs> so if you've um, if you've enjoyed that little crossover, let us know. Let us know if you want us to do it again. Um, always interested to hear feedback from you. For those of you who are still listening, after now I started wrapping up. <laughs> um, we started um, to get some responses from our survey. Yeah, and <laughs> we know that you're, you're, if you're listening now, you're one of the chosen few that mm. keeps on listening to the end. Um, so, say hello. You can find us everywhere um, as US Podcast. Um, and you can find The Dirt Show as The Dirt Show mm. um, on Twitter and um, um, on um, Fresh Tilled Soil is the name of their agency. Mm. Um, and they're publishing their crossover show on the same day as us. Yeah. <laughs> so you can listen to both of them and compare and contrast and see and whether see. it actually is the same show on both yeah, sides. Yeah, and see if they edited anything. <laughs> yeah, spot the difference. Yeah. Should we give a prize to anyone who can spot the differences? Uh, no, yeah. maybe not. Okay. Um, thanks very much for listening to us all today. Remember to keep moving. And see you on the other side. <laughs>